Let's pray. Father, you blow all, all of our categories. We can't contain you with our hearts or with our minds. We're astounded at your greatness and your glory. We're grateful for your mercy that you've had on us in Christ. We thank you for giving us your word to tell us the truth about Christ and our condition and how desperately we need him to rescue us from sin and give us life. We thank you, Father, for the revelation of your glory and your goodness. So grant your spirit to help me to communicate your word clearly, truly, and for our hearts to grasp it. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the text that Matt read for you starts out, Oh, what leads Paul to say, oh? So where we were last week in verses 25 through 32 in chapter 11 of Romans um, is what led him to say, oh. So all of human history is telling the story of God's glory. All of human history is telling the story of God's glory. But there have been many complications in the story as it unfolds. God's chosen people, Israel, has largely rejected their Messiah, Jesus. Those who are not God's chosen people have been being saved in large numbers over the centuries. That's us Gentiles. What is God doing? Well, what Paul said in verses 25 and 26 of Romans 11 was he called it a mystery. God had not revealed this until now, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. So why is God now saving only a remnant of Israel while he is saving many millions of Gentiles so that when he saves all the Gentiles he's going to save, he removes Israel's hardening and saves all Israelites who are living when Christ returns and then they, as they turn to him? Why is he doing that? And is that confusing? Well, what Paul says in, in Romans eleven thirty to 32 is because our default mode as human beings is disobedience to God, we come wired that way. We disobey God by our very nature. Uh, the only way that any could be saved is by the, God's mere mercy, for God to have, simply to have mercy on us in Jesus Christ. So God has structured history to display the glory of his mercy through his saving plan. That's why it says in verse 32 that God has consigned or he has shut up all to disobedience because all, both Israelites and Gentiles, have been disobedient and there is no freedom from disobedience and its consequences but by his mercy. God is magnifying his mercy through Christ in history as the one hope for all time for the universal disobedience of all Jews and Gentiles. How should we respond to this? And that's where Paul says, Oh, I can't believe what I just wrote. How long has it been since you were overwhelmed with amazement at God and said, 
Oh. Or if you need a more complex word with more letters. Wow. (laughs) When were you last more excited about God than your favorite TV show? When were you last more astounded by God than your favorite recreational activity? When were you more amazed by God than a great meal that you had? In chapters 9 through 11, we've seen Paul's heart running the gamut of emotions. In chapter 9, verse 2, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart over the reality that many of his fellow Israelites were lost because they rejected Jesus as their Savior. In chapter 10, verse 1, we see Paul's heart's desire and prayer is for the Jews' salvation. And now in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, Paul soars with awe and praise for God, for his deep wisdom and incomprehensible ways. How amazing God should work out his plan of salvation this way. Paul is praising God, exclaiming his awe of God for the depth of his riches and wisdom and knowledge, or or probably more likely what he's saying is the depth of his riches and of his wisdom and knowledge. The depth of of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. The depth of our human wisdom and knowledge compared to the depth of God's wisdom is like a small puddle compared to the Pacific Ocean. And even that doesn't begin to compare it. As Psalm 147 verse 5 says, God's understanding is beyond measure. You cannot measure. You can't sound out the depths of his understanding. God has never experienced not knowing something. He's never been unable to figure something out. He's never said, oh, I never knew that. He's never had the experience of saying, oops. He's never said, I guess I made a mistake. Or if only I had known, if only I had known this, I would have done something different. God's never had that experience. How often do we fail or have regrets because we just didn't know enough? We just didn't, we couldn't anticipate the future. We couldn't anticipate how something was going to work out or not work out. Like every week, something happens like like that. God never experiences this. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And for some of you, that's getting easier to count all the time. He knows the number of stars. He's got names for them all. He knows exactly everything that ever was, everything that is, everything that ever will be. He's working out his plan of salvation exactly as he has always designed it. He's not struggling to keep up with the changes. He doesn't need any do-overs. Paul goes on to say how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Have you used the word inscrutable yet this week? So uh, unsearchable and unscrutable virtually mean the same thing. Inscrutable can be translated incomprehensible or um, untraceable or unfathomable. God's judgments are his decisions and his ways are his actions in the world. So what Paul is saying is 
humans can't piece together world and life events and figure out how God is accomplishing his saving plan through them. In fact, it may look to us that world events are too chaotic and crazy and full of evil for God to be making anything good come out of it. Least of all, his plan of salvation. But God has revealed to and through the Apostle Paul what he is doing precisely because we would never conclude this from our own ability to interpret what we see. So God, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, has planned history so that he works his decisions and actions to use the disobedience of his chosen people, Israel, to bring saving mercy to us Gentiles. And through the mercy shown us, all Israel will receive saving mercy. In other words, God is demonstrating through all history that the only way to be saved from our disobedience to him is to receive mercy from Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in history. For the very reason that God is accomplishing and will accomplish the saving plan out of a world that is falling apart, for that very reason, God, uh, Paul says, Oh, oh, for the incomparable comprehensible ways of God. I can't grasp it. It's overwhelming me. God is greater than Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson. If you're taking notes, write God is greater than Russell Wilson. Or you can tweet that. For Maybe you're, maybe you're saying God's plan doesn't seem very efficient. What is he thinking? I, I don't get his reasoning for arranging human history this way. And, and, the, and the response to that is, verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? And the answer to that is, not Oregon, but zero. <laughs> And Paul gets this from Isaiah 40, verse 13, when Israel was exiled in Babylon back about 700 A.D., B.C., sorry. God promises he will bring them back out in a kind of second exodus. Israel is fearful because they're weak and worried. And, um, and Babylon is strong and studly. The Lord assures Israel that he can accomplish his saving plan because all the nations are as nothing before him. God knows what he's doing and he has the power to accomplish what he plans. Some of you, some of us, are in seriously deep, hard circumstances in which you cannot see how God is mercifully at work for our good. You just can't see it. It doesn't make sense. We can't grasp the depths of of the wisdom of, of God in his mind as he is working good for us. So trust that God isn't mystified or confused by your situation. He's at work for good. He knows what he's doing. Or who has been his counselor? You might say, well, I hope God consulted with some experts in carrying out plans for global salvation like the United Nations. They're doing a great job, aren't they? Or at least I hope he conducted some opinion polls. The Lord has never needed counsel from anyone. He has no planning committee. He's not hiring out to a consulting firm. 
He doesn't have an advisory board. Rather, as it says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things, all things after the counsel of His will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. It's His will and His counsel that determines everything. He needs no other counselor. How often have you realized you should have sought advice or counsel after you failed at something? And you've had to utter those dreaded words, I should have listened to my wife. Does does that happen to anybody ever? Or I should have listened to my parents. Or I should have read the instructions. I should have followed those little guys in the Ikea pictures. God never has to do that. He never has to. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Someone might say, why does God's saving plan have to be so centered on mercy? Doesn't he owe salvation to everybody? I mean, doesn't he owe it to us? Isn't God obligated to save us? Besides, doesn't God owe us a plan that makes sense to us? Doesn't he owe us a, a, a plan of salvation that, um, where we get to dictate the terms? What Paul's saying is, who has first given to the Lord so that he is obligated to repay? No one has ever given to the Lord or done him a favor to make God indebted to them in any way. And our typical way is we think, well, if I do the right things, if I'm a good, nice guy and I keep my shoes polished and wear clean clothes and eat my spinach, God owes me something. When you work for someone, they're obligated to pay you. When you borrow money from a bank, they hope you'll be so kind as to pay them back. But no worries if you don't. Right? Wrong? Not how it works. They have first given funds to you that you are legally obligated to repay them. I hope this isn't surprising. God is a debtor to no one. God is a debtor to no one. He owes the human race nothing. He is totally free and just to show mercy or not, to reveal his plans or not. If God owes us something, his mercy is is meaningless. Not mercy, it's debt. Why doesn't God need anyone to give him counsel? Why can no one give to him so that he is required to repay? Well, God doesn't need counsel, and he owes nothing to anyone because God is the source and the goal of all things. That's what he says in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything comes from God, is accomplished through God, and everything is to God. That is, everything fits into his plans and his purposes. There are no loose ends that God is not working out to accomplish his will for the universe and for your life, down to the smallest detail. That is what it means for God to be sovereign. There is nothing that happens or exists apart from his 
causing it to be or his permitting it to be. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. There are no maverick molecules. There are no maverick molecules. People say the devil is in the details. The truth is God is in the details. God is sovereign over the details, even over the details. Does Paul mean that God is even using evil things in his plan of salvation? Well, Paul has said that through the transgression of Israel in rejecting Christ, salvation has come to Gentile peoples. So yes, he's using the evil of unbelief to bring salvation to us. God has consigned all Jews and Gentiles to their disobedience so that he proves for all time that salvation can only come through his mercy provided through Jesus Christ. So yeah, I mean, God's working massively with evil and and rotten decisions and unbelief and sin to accomplish his purposes. It's a familiar verse, Romans 8.28, when he writes, All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things include the bad things. You might ask, how does God accomplish his will with people since they make choices, often bad ones? Does God control what people do? How does God work everything to carry out his plans while still holding people responsible for their choices and actions? Are you asking that question again? Did you know you're supposed to be asking that question? So I'll give the answer again. The answer is that the scriptures present that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. They're both true. The the scripture always presents both as just absolutely both true. That God is sovereign and we're responsible for our actions. God himself is perfectly, radically holy. He is not the author of sin and evil. God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. There's no hidden dark parts. But he has permitted sin to exist and sovereignly uses people's sinful choices to accomplish his good and wise purposes. I'm not making this up. Let's look at some scriptures. Um, Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Or Proverbs 16.9 The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So we plan, we think, we make decisions in our hearts, and God governs the outcome. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph talking to his brothers who had kidnapped him and sent him into slavery, sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. God didn't just use it for good. He meant it for good. To bring about many people should be kept alive as they are today. And uh, in Acts chapter 2, the worst evil ever done was, was ordained by God. This Jesus, this is Peter preaching, con- convicting the Jews who had been a part of, of putting Christ to death. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus was delivered up to, to death by the, God's definite plan and foreknowledge. You crucified. God definitely planned it. 
you're responsible for crucifying him. Killed by the, and you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You used the Roman government to crucify him. So Peter's convicting them of their sin, but saying that God sovereignly planned that this would happen. And then in Acts chapter 4, the people are praying to God, and they're saying, Truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, so whom you anointed as Messiah, as Savior. All these people were gathered against him. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel are responsible for what they did, but God predestined it to take place. But God doesn't exercise his sovereign will over people's choices like a Jedi. You know, I'm sorry for the Star Wars illustration, but yeah, like he just waves his hand and makes, puts words in their mouths, and they're saying, well, I don't know why I'm saying this. God's not a Jedi. He is able to do it without coercing our wills. God is sovereign, but we are responsible. How else could God be qualified to accomplish his plan of salvation unless from him and through him and to him are all things? How should we respond to this mind-blowing truth about God? To him be glory forever. Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. Second part of verse 36. To him be glory forever. What is glory? Glory is the excellence of something, the praiseworthiness, the honor, the value. To give glory to something is to praise its worth, is to exalt its excellence, to rejoice in what we love about it, to delight in the meaning it gives to our lives. We are hardwired to give glory to what we value, to what we delight in, to what we see as excellent and great and worthy of exalting. We're hardwired to, to give glory to what we perceive gives meaning to our lives, to what inspires awe in us. We give glory to the Camus football team. There's not a person here who does that? Wow, you're not very good fans. We hope to give glory to the Seahawks, some of us. Except for these front row San Francisco fans. We give glory to a great movie, a moving musical performance, an inspiring speech, an athletic feat, to a great meal, to a beautiful sunset, to a majestic mountain, to a celebrity. I'm amazed at how much glory we're giving to the Pope. Wow, he's getting lots of press, lots of... Lots of glory. We don't have to be taught to give glory to things we value and, and see as worthy of praise. We just naturally do it. It's just, it's, we just do it. As soon as a baby can express herself, she shows joyful excitement to see her parents. She gives glory to them. She gives glory to a, a clean diaper. Giving glory to good things is good and right, but we're to give the highest glory to God. To Him belongs the highest glory. The glory of God is His excellence, His praiseworthiness, His honor, His value, His weightiness, His beauty, and all of His 
attributes, his holiness, his goodness, his power, his righteousness, his mercy. To say to God be glory forever means that we believe and desire that God will forever be enjoyed and exalted for his glory, for his infinite worth, his awesomeness. Indeed, God created the universe as a theater for his glory. God created the universe as a theater for his glory. He created people who would delight in his glory, who would find their highest good in valuing and reflecting the glory of God. We will never grow tired of giving glory to God. We'll never exhaust our delight in giving glory to God. We will forever increase in being amazed by him. God's glory will be radiant and energize the whole universe. It does that now, but it's muted by sin, by corruption. In addition, in, in the context to God be glory forever means that God will forever receive the glory, the honor, the praise, the ultimate credit for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. It will be obvious for all eternity that the only reason there are any in the new heavens and new earth is due to the wise and merciful plan of God. Some of the lyrics from the top 40 songs in heaven include, from the book of Revelation, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know how the tune goes, but there's actually a song that, that has that. Or Revelation 7.12. This is sung by an indie rock band called The, the Elders and the Four Living Creatures. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I, mean, I believe it. That's the greatest truth I know. Along with Jesus loves me, this I know. But the Bible tells me so. So that I can give glory to God. Besides verbally praising God, how else do we give Him glory? Well, some ways include Romans 4.20. I think that's on the screen. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham gave glory to God by trusting in God's promise that he would make of him a great nation and bless the nations through him. Even though he had no son, he trusted that God would do this by giving him a son, even though he was 100 and Sarah, his wife, was 90 and they had no kids and none of the fertility clinics were taking new patients. So like Abraham, we give glory to God by trusting in his word, even when it looks impossible for God to fulfill it. We're saying he's worth trusting because of his faithfulness and his power. Another way we give glory to God is in Romans 15, 5-7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we glorify God by encouraging one another, by welcoming one another, by, by living in harmony together, um, bearing with one another in, in our weaknesses, building one another up. We can't do that in isolation. We need to come together to encourage one another for, for God's glory. God is glorified as we do that.
Or 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I ate salmon this weekend to the glory of God. Fantastic salmon. Everything we do, we do in a way that honors God. Everything we do. In our work, in our in our home, in our family, as we're driving down the street, as we're shopping at Safeway, everything we do, we do to the glory of God. In ways that acknowledges goodness and his supremacy in all things. And finally, first Peter one eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So when I got engaged to Patty, when I knew I wanted to marry her, I couldn't, there's a lot I couldn't explain about why I loved her so much. And that's how it is with people we love. We just, hey, why do you love this person? You can give some answers. You can say, well, because they do this or that, or they have these this or that characteristics. But there's a depth of, of affection that's just there that you can't express. That's how it is if you've been born again by God's mercy to have living hope. Inexpressible joy. It's what your heart loves and does if you're a child of God. It rejoices with inexpressible joy in the glory of God. Not perfectly, but you are most satisfied when God is most glorified. You're happiest when God gets the most glory. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Our hearts respond to God-glorifying words. Our hearts respond to God-glorifying words. Our hearts delight in the glory of God. If you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have that. So I'm going to pray that uh, we don't leave here today without knowing Jesus Christ. And in that, we would glorify God. Let's pray. Father, you have designed history to demonstrate that the only way that we can be rescued from our disobedience, our disobedient hearts and lives, is through your mercy. And you've had mercy on us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He took upon the sins of all the Jews and Gentiles the unbelief of the Jews, the disobedience of the Gentiles. And he paid the price for our guilt and our rebellion against your glory. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Father, because of what you've done, we do love you. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We believe in you. We trust and pray, Father, that Christ's rescue plan is totally worth whatever we're facing in this life. We trust you in your sovereign care over all things that you're working out a good design for our lives. Ultimately, when we're with you in the new heavens and new earth. But even now, Father, as we become those who spread the message of your mercy among all peoples, whether in Kamaswashugal, Vancouver, Portland, whether Morocco, France, Spain, 
Italy, Indonesia, Tibet, Mongolia, China, Japan, North Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Jordan, United Arab Emirates, India, Pakistan. Father, we, we long for your glory to be spread throughout all the nations and in our community and in our homes. We long to long more for your glory, to, to delight and enjoy your glory more and more, for that to be our driving motivation in all that we do, and for that to shape us, Father, into in, in the people that you've redeemed us to be. Father, I pray that no one will leave here today without knowing that Jesus Christ is the revelation of your glory. He richly saves all who come to him by faith. So, Father, draw us to yourself. Draw us to Jesus, whether for the first time or the 10,000 the first time. Give us joy in your, in your glory, Father. In Christ we pray.